is to admit they have wronged people. And it has come to my attention, it's been brought to my attention, that my attitude has not been what it should be. And I, perhaps, the things that I have said and my attitude have kept some people from attending. And if you are out there and watching this online or you are here and anything that I have said or my attitude has stood in your way, I am so sorry. I really am. I like to believe that all Christians are held to a higher standard. But especially someone who is a preacher and an elder is held to a very high standard. I hold myself to a high standard. And when I realize that it has been brought to my attention, and I am so ignorant of this, is, the, is what bothers me the most, is that I didn't see it. So I, I apologize from the bottom of my heart. If there's anything that, that I need to do further than this, please let me know. I'm so sorry. One of the questions that is going to be asked today is, really is a hard-hitting question. The series is the in July being the seventh month, are a series of sevens. And these are seven great questions that Jesus asked. And the first one, actually the first one that is a two-part, Kenny read for us. As Jesus approaches his disciples. And when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know. He's all-knowing. In the same way that when God asked Adam in the garden, who told you you were naked? He knew. He knew all of these things. When he talks to Cain and asks about his brother, it wasn't because he didn't know where Abel was. He knew. And Jesus asked questions. Not because, yes, he's interested in what people say, but it's to challenge people to think for themselves. And Christianity is not a dumb person's, pardon me that, that phraseology, but it's for intelligent people who can reason. And when Jesus asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I have no doubt, and it's just conjecture on my part, that his disciples had no idea where he was going with this. But he asked that question to see what they had heard, so that they could reason with this. And the B part of that, as he asks, really hits home. Well, when they told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets... That's a reasonable answer. They answered the question. But now he asks the question that hits him right between the eyes. And not just them, but you and I. It is a great conversation starter. But 
who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the impetuous one, little play on words there, answers. Well, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You think that was a lucky guess? No, Jesus knew. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. No one out there had to tell you who I was. You came to that conclusion because of the things that you had seen. Because the Father who is in heaven did it. You could see this for yourself. It had been revealed because of who I was. No one has to say, Peter, did you know that that guy is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? No, they didn't have to tell him. People can figure this out for themselves. You see, there's peer pressure that we grow up with being told that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. But that point of which individuals come to that conclusion on their own because they realize, I am a poor sinner. I am lost in my sins. And I now realize the only way that that burden can be lifted from me is through Christ. Because I realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. We think for ourselves. We ask that question. I like, I like the question. Tim did an excellent job of picking out songs for our lesson today because the songs ask questions. Does Jesus care? And Kenny, thanks for remarking on that when you told about the, the man in the Coast Guard. Interesting. We ask people, well, who do you think? that Jesus is. Who is this Jesus guy that you talk about? Who is it that we've heard about? And when was the last time someone came up to you, a total stranger on the seat, on the street, or you're pumping gas, or you're in the store and said, hey, I heard about this guy named Jesus. Have you heard of I, I don't know who they're talking about. Do you know who that is? You say, well, I sure do, and I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you all about it. You see Philip as he's walking along the road, when the angel says, I want you to go to that guy, and he sees the Ethiopian eunuch, well, there's a conversation starter right there. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no, not unless someone tells me. And Philip started from there and went. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that we read within the context of the scripture but it's one that is applicable for you and I today. And the second one is like it in Mark chapter 3 and verse 33. If you want to be turning there, this also is in your outline that is found in the bulletin. In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who are my mother and brothers? Peter, at one point, asked Jesus, look at all that we have given up. What will we get? And Jesus tells him that no one who has given up, and he makes that list of things that they have given up, will in no wise get less than a hundredfold in this life and in eternity. Who are my mother and brothers? Here they are. They are the ones. It is a question that Jesus challenges them with this. Do you think for a moment that Jesus forgot who his mother and brothers were? But it was an opportunity that he saw there in the moment to answer the question. Hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They're trying to get in to see you. And in a moment's time, he answers that question. Who are they? I'll tell you who they are. They are the ones who do the will of God. That is my mother and sister and brothers. Such a great response. And I wonder how quick we are of turning the average conversation into a spiritual one. Of taking that point of which a regular conversation becomes spiritual in nature. And in a moment's notice, are able to bring someone to a point of thinking of things greater than themselves. The third question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus begins by asking that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears us does not do them is like the man who built a house on ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We more than likely relate that parable, as it were, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus begins this in perhaps another setting by asking, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's the point where we kind of, you can't see it, but you know how kids will do it. They'll put their hands in their pocket and They'll take one shoe and rub it against the back on their leg and dig in the, in the ground and kind of sheepishly think, boy, that was a pointed question. Is that any less applicable today than it was nearly 2,000 years ago? You see, the world asks that question all the time of us. Why is it you call him Lord, Lord, and don't do what he tells you to do? 
Why is it you're not kinder? Why isn't it you aren't more faithful? Because they see us as the example. Because Jesus said, you're the light and the salt. People know this. Why is it you call him Lord and don't do what he tells you to do? A very hard-hitting question. Question number four comes from John chapter 4. The context of this is that Jesus has met the woman at the well. And he has answered some great questions to her. And he has given her great teaching. And she has realized that this is the prophet. And she is so impressed by what he tells her that she runs into her village and tells everyone. And as his disciples are coming back, you can catch the backdrop that they are coming, the village is coming towards him. And Jesus asks this question. Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest? And that's the question. Isn't that what you're saying? Is that in four months? Let's see, Jan, four months from now you'll be harvesting corn. Is that correct? Oh, good. Boy, I'd really look silly if he says, no, 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 you're way off on it. But yes, we say, well, Jan, four months until we're going to harvest the corn. And that'd be reasonable. Don't, isn't that what you say? But Jesus turns this, and as that crowd is coming, you don't, you don't normally think about it until you read the context, but this crowd is coming, and Jesus says, but I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. And what is the harvest? See, we typically think of the harvest as being that end time when Jesus shall come with the angels and the dead shall be raised and that. But Jesus says, no. He says the harvest is a salvation of souls. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And I wonder, the question that is asked in your outline, is that can we be challenged to think outside the box? And not say, oh yes, there will be a time and yet in the future when we shall do these things. And not realize that today is the day when we can be doing things. Not sometime in the future. And perhaps there is a complacency that takes place. I know I get caught up in that. I get so complacent in things. In thinking that I, next year I'm going to get in shape. I'll let that one sink in. To me, not you. No, now's the time. I can get in shape now. But it's more than that. There is an urgency that we see. An urgency of souls that need to be harvested for the kingdom. In Luke chapter 6, we come to the next question. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And here I go, sheepishly with my hand in my pockets again, shining the back of my pants with my shoes and thinking, I think that one hit me pretty close. If I love those who love me, that's pretty easy, isn't it? But isn't it tough to love the unlovable? Amen? You see, the world sometimes sees us as unloving because we tend to exclude certain groups. When the gospel needs to go out to all people, not just people who dress like us and look like us and talk like us. Because Jesus wasn't afraid to go out and preach the gospel to those who the Jews said were sinners and publicans. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. I don't know what the Greek word is for comfort zone. Maybe you can help me with that. But we all have a comfort zone that we dwell in, that little bubble that helps protect us. But here this challenges us to step outside that comfort zone and show the world that the church really is about love. Our sixth question comes from Mark chapter 8. And the last two questions really have eternal consequences. Not that the first five didn't, but the last two really hit hard. In Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And it really comes down to answering the question within ourselves of What is the purpose of my life? And who will profit from my life? Over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will talk about his labors. And who will get all that which I labored for? For we begin to answer those questions for ourselves that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what am I working What is my life all about? Those big, big questions. Because Solomon in chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes will say that that God has set eternity in our hearts, yet so that man cannot see the end. But he set eternity. He has set something here in this, this part of my brain I don't use very much at times. 
that we ask questions. My dog doesn't ask that question when I was growing up. Neither did our cows or horses or pig or goats. None of those asked me the question, what am I here for? You know what I would have told them. So we can eat this winter. That's, that's the question and the answer. But you and I ask the greater question. What's my life all about? And Jesus puts the eternal part of this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And we ask that question in the context of, what is my life all about? Why am I working? What is this life about? And the last question that I have here from John chapter 13, beginning in verse 12. In John chapter 13, Jesus has finished the Lord's Supper. He has made that transition from the Passover to what we have as the Lord's Supper. And then he does the absolute unthinkable. Because they know who he is. They know he is the Christ. They know he is Lord. They know he is God. And what does he do next? He takes a towel and washes their feet. And Peter perhaps has the same reaction that many of us would have. <laughs> no. No, you, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm the one that should be washing your feet. But Jesus asked the question in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And I can imagine that he has given them plenty of time to think of what he has done for them. And then he asks the question. Do you understand what I have done for you? And I think in the big scheme of things, you and I could have that question asked of us. Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? He continues in the context of this, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And sometimes... I wonder and ask myself, do I understand what Christ has done for me? As the example, because Paul would say in his letters, imitate me as I have imitated Christ. Paul understood. Paul understood because he came from that lofty place as a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, raised at the feet of Gamaliel, and came down, and in Damascus, 
Christ tells Ananias, Go, for I will show him how much he must suffer for me. And I wonder, as many times as Paul mentions the things that he gave up and the suffering he inflicted, that if that stuck in the back of his mind, and that's just a question I ask for myself, but Paul realized it by the life that he had led, what Christ had done for him. And this question rings larger than within the context is I know that I understand what Christ did for them if I am doing the same thing for my brothers and sisters. You see, if we backed up a couple of questions and he says, why call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I told you? I know I understand it if I do it. To know and not to do is not to know. So in all of these questions, this one really is the most poignant of it. Because it's a question that Jesus can't answer for them. They must answer for themselves. And as we close this lesson, and it will be yours momentarily, we have to ask ourselves the question, as if Jesus is sitting in that chair and asking me, do you understand what I've done for you? Not only in the context of serving, but do you understand that I gave my life for you? That I hung upon that cross and from eternity knew you. And by my reaction, he will know if I understood. Or if I walk out the door and change nothing in my life to become like Christ, I tell him, no, I didn't understand. But to make that change says, I understand what you have done for me. And my life changes. And so as we ask these questions, the same ones that were asked nearly 2,000 years ago, and knowing that Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. He knew the answers. But he wants us to think for ourselves, to be thinking people and realize what he has done for us. So as we close this lesson for today, we continue with another question. If the name of the Savior is precious to you, will you not tell it today? Whatever your need is, we stand ready to help in any way that we can. It's together we stand and sing. If the name of the